welcome back to another episode of Confessions of a Crappy Christian. I am your host and resident crappy Christian, Blake, and every week I get to have the coolest conversations with incredible people about all the things most Christians are still not sure we're allowed to talk about. So if you've been looking for a place to land with all your crap and for someone to just be honest about what it looks like to walk through this Christian life, well, you've come to the right place. Pull up a seat, pop in your headphones and tune out your kids and come hang out with me and a guest for the authentic conversations that you have been looking for. Stephanie, hey, welcome to the Crappy Christian Podcast. Hi, Blake. It is so much fun to be here today with you. I am so looking forward to this conversation for so many reasons, one of which I'm really just excited for the listeners to get to enjoy something other than a very American accent. (laughs) You're so funny. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, well, where all you are from and what you do now. Yeah. So as you can hear, yes, I do have a bit of an accent, which you from Louisiana can appreciate because yes, I'm (laughs) French and I'm like, completely French. It's not like I'm an American with a French accent. I'm literally French. I grew up in France and I learned English actually on uh, the benches of middle school and high school in France. So that really was not my native language at all, which explains why my accent has never gone away because I've learned it Mm -hmm. as a teenager slash young adult. And then I realized when I was about 15 or 16 that I wanted to be in business, but that I didn't have the English that was necessary to succeed in business. And so I decided to spend significant time in an English-speaking country, and that was the U.S. So I ended up doing my senior year of high school in a high school in America. And a lot more happened than me learning English because, Mm -hmm. Blake, I grew up as an atheist, and Mm -hmm. I came to America as a 16-year-old as a very strong atheist. But lo and behold, God had a plan because he put me in this amazing family that were my American mom and dad for a whole year, and they were very strong Christians. Wow. And that was my first encounter with Christians. And long story short, I gave my life to Christ. And we can dive into that if you want. But um, that is kind of the nutshell of where I started and how God took hold of me a little bit. Yeah. I think a lot of people in America, their experience, if they didn't grow up in a Christian home, is that they grew up in kind of an ambivalent home that Mm -hmm. it wasn't that they didn't believe in God. It was just, we go to church on Easter and and maybe Christmas, Mm -hmm. but that experience of growing up in a home where you, I mean, in, with an atheism and not, and believing there is not a God. Correct. I would love to hear just Mm -hmm. a little bit about what that looked like growing up. Well, um, the only time in my life that I went to church was when I was a baby and my grandmother was a nominal Catholic and she wanted us to be baptized. And so my mom and dad agreed to have me baptized as an infant. And that's the only time in my life that I ever went to church as a kid. So. Needless to say, I don't remember that. And that doesn't really count. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) And that was it because um, my parents were both very strong atheists. My mom, as she got a little older, moved towards um, very new age mysticism, Mm -hmm. maybe some new agey form of Buddhism of some sort, but uh, definitely not anything within the Judeo-Christian worldview. And my father was a very, very strong atheist. He was a little bit of my hero growing up. Um, 
that was a very misplaced trust because unfortunately my dad was a very poor role model figure, but he mm -hmm. taught me to value people like Stephen Hawking and other such uh, very, you know, evolutionistic, Darwinist, mm -hmm. atheists, and taught me to truly despise people who have any sort of religious worldview as people who need a crutch because they are weak, because mm. when you're strong, you don't need to make up a God. You don't need to invent a God. You have to be self-sufficient and strong. The world we live in is a dog-eat-dog -dog kind of world. And if you can't make it on your own strength, then maybe you need to resort to lame crutches such as religion But when you are strong and smart, you really don't need God. And that was my worldview growing up. And uh, I would be very sad to have to admit today that it is the worldview of many, many French people even today. Mm. So, uh, But God changed all of that because God is bigger than all of that. Right. It's just so interesting to me. You know, I, again, I think that people would have experience with a worldview like your mom's being more new agey, narcissism, but someone who outright was anti-Christianity that thought that those people were weak and ignorant. So then you moved to the United States for English speaking experience and you're put in a home with people who believe something that you have been taught is worthless. Yes. And actually, not only had I been taught that, but I was 16. So I was beginning to be able Believed to, it. right, to make my own mind and to decide this was what I believed. I um, truly was rejecting the weakness that I assumed it came from any kind of faith perspective. And, and the truth is... Um, Because my mom was a bit on the new agey side of things, I guess my dad was a bit more um, tolerant towards that. But the Judeo-Christian worldview in particular was extremely despised in my household. Um, and there's a long story as of why uh, growing up in a country that has been Catholic for near 2000 years, you can imagine how much postmodernism can impact that. But coming to the US, I assumed that my Uh, newly found American mom and dad were Christians because I thought that's what Americans did. Um, huh? It's kind of a little bit what you're describing. Americans had that reputation in France at the time of being church-going people, maybe mm. not necessarily as you and I would describe Christians today, having a living relationship with Christ, but as religious, as church-goers. Right. You know, and so I wasn't really surprised. I in my arrogance of all of 16 years old, and I'm speaking with a lot of humility, um, you know, being so arrogant when you're 16, I really thought that they were um, probably wrong. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I don't think I ever considered I would change their minds, but I never thought they would change mine like they did. Right, right. <laughs> but what happens, you see, Blake, is that I found myself overnight immersed in a culture that was not mine, even though mm -hmm. it was not completely different. It's not like I had gone to, I don't know, some, you know, I don't know, China or um, Africa or somewhere really, really different. I mean, the US and Europe still have a lot in common culturally. So it was right. familiar in many ways, but it was different enough that it took me completely out of my comfort zone. And the beauty of that is that it forced me to reevaluate everything that I had taken for granted growing up. And I think it's the beauty of uprooting yourself at least once in your lifetime is mm -hmm. that it forces you to think outside your cultural box because you don't mm -hmm. have a, ch a chance. I mean, you don't have a, uh, an alternative. You have to do that because you're faced with people 
who are very respectable, who earn your love and your trust and your respect because they're amazing, but they think completely different from you. Mm-hmm. And it forces you to decide what do you really trust slash believe. And so mm-hmm. my American mom and dad very kindly and respectfully embraced me in their family. They loved me. They had three little kids at home. You can relate to that, can't you? They had a <laughs> yes. five-year-old, a two-year-old, and a newborn. And so wow. you can relate again roughly to that. And imagine taking on, you know, a 16 or 17-year-old foreign exchange student for a year in your house right now. Right. Uh, it would it would be different, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would um, be a lot. <laughs> right? And it's not like I was a no pair or anything. I wasn't in charge of the kids. I was a high school student living with them for a year, but they loved on me. They were caring and patient. And I assume they were praying their heads off because God was moving <laughs> and I, you know, they wouldn't tell me that, but they, they just loved on me. They, they were smart. They were loving and caring and respectful. And what they did is that they earned the right to tell me about their God. Mm-hmm. They didn't shove God in my face. They were, they were just amazing. They, they've taught me how to share Christ with others for the, you know, the however many decades since then because they did it very respectfully. And so I've learned from them how to share Christ respectfully because mm-hmm. um, it works. Love well, and that's, works. Yeah, they... I, that's something that I've started saying recently on, on podcast episodes on my Instagram is loving people to Jesus rather than informing them mm-hmm. or instructing them that you love them yeah. to Jesus. And I love what you said about that. They earned the right yeah. to tell you about their God. They didn't come out the gate guns blazing. Let me tell you about God. They, they earned that relational currency and showed you God just by loving you well. Exactly. And also by telling me because they weren't ashamed of God. So they were very open about their faith. But it was this healthy balance of walking the talk. I mean, I know mm-hmm. it sounds very cliche, but it truly is what they were doing. They lived the way they described their life to be, if that makes sense. And they they just did it. They loved on me. They the, One of the most beautiful things, Blake, is that they we're not ashamed to make mistakes in front of me, Mm. which coming from my super self-sufficient, super achieving, super perfectionist culture, I had never seen that. For example, as a young couple with three kids, you know, once in a while, of course, they would have arguments. So, Mm -hmm. but they would not be ashamed to have an argument in front of me, but then they would also reconcile in front of me. They Mm -hmm. would discipline their kids in front of me. They would not pretend that their kids were perfect. They were honest and real they were, they were truly Christ followers and it was beautiful to see. So they did earn that right to tell me about him. And by informing me as well, I accumulated a lot of head knowledge about Christ that I had never had before, because you see, I had never met a Christian in my life before. Wow. And so I only knew what Christians believed through the atheist books that I was reading Mm-hmm. And so obviously it was not a very accurate picture of Christian belief because it was through the right. lens of my atheist authors. And, and I would, father. <laughs> and and oh, yes, of course, absolutely. And pretty much my entire um, support system, school, you name it, everyone's an atheist. And so hmm. having meeting real flesh and blood Christians who were not ashamed of their faith, who were proud of their Lord, but who were truly humble, that, that's life-changing, Blake. Absolutely. 
So how did your parents react to that? Oh, oh my goodness. That is an amazing question. Well, uh, my parents were divorced at the time before I left. So when I, ca- I came back, it was a bit um, of a scattered, you know, return. But my mom um, thought that it was a phase that I would grow mm. out of it. She was glad that I had found something that was spiritually meaningful to me. Mm. But she really thought it was a phase. Um, this was almost 30 years ago. She still thinks it's a phase. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> and my dad, unfortunately... Um, my dad took it as a rejection of everything that he is and mm. everything that I had taught him. And um, I, I mentioned, yeah, I unfortunately don't have a very good, you know, role model as a father. And I love him deeply, but he is an alcoholic and he had a lot of affairs and he is um, an extremely mentally unstable person who has mm-hmm. decided to um, reject me entirely. And he hasn't spoken to me in years as a result of this, uh, because he refuses that his smart quote unquote daughter would make such a stupid choice. And therefore that I'm not worthy of a relationship with him. And oh. that's okay. God mm-hmm. knows. And the story's not over and I'm still praying for him. It's been 28 years. Um, but God knows. And I've, learned to look to God as my father. So all is well. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, I mean, I'm still very sorry that that's been your experience, especially for something that I I know that you wish that you could usher him into. Oh, yes. That instead you were not only is he rejecting God, but he's rejecting his daughter in kind. And that's just it's just very sad. It but is sad. You're but right. God it is. It's okay. okay. Yeah, it is okay. Right. It is very much okay because I have learned that God loves my father way more than I ever could. And mm-hmm. that's enough. Amen. Absolutely. So I want to talk about this subject of culture because you have experience with a lot of different cultures and I don't. <laughs> I've we talked before we started recording. I've never lived anywhere but Louisiana. And that's okay. It that's is. Fine. I've never been to Louisiana. It's one of my, you know, bucket list dream states to visit. So yes. Well, and you would I mean you would fit right. It's so French here. Yes. That it would be it would be so great. You would you would be able to read the menus better than anybody that's from <laughs> here, been here their whole lives, probably. Well your last but, name, I, your last name itself is absolutely amazing. And I love the way you say it. So it oh, is so yeah, French. I know. <laughs> it is it's so French. Um Cajun French. French. My my family and my husband's families are both born and bred Louisiana. So mm-hmm. we are it's in our in our blood. But How has living in all of these different places, I mean, just, I know that you've lived more places than what you've said, which is, you know, France and and Pennsylvania, but how have living, how has living all those places shaped your approach to culture? Oh, that is such a, um, a deep question, such a profound insight that you're giving the fact that you even realize the importance of culture because, um, so we, I lived in France, you know, came back to France as the, what I thought was the very first French Christian ever, because I had never met a French (laughs) Christian. Right. Uh, so I really just had no idea. Um, and then after I got married, uh, we moved to North Africa where we lived for about a decade. And then we lived in the UK in London for some time as well. And then we've been here in Pennsylvania, as you said, for about five years. So I think our life has, we've kept on encountering different cultures and what that has taught me and starting when I was that foreign exchange student, but all the way up until now, because I still live in a culture that is not my own here in, mm-hmm. um, in the States, 
I've learned the importance of setting aside what you think you know about yourself and about mm. others to set that aside in order to embrace who they really are and who you truly are. Because being stripped from culture forces you. It's like changing an outfit. Do you feel exactly the same way when you are in a cute dress and high heels or when you're wearing a sweater and, you know, your slippers? We feel right. different. The way we dress, the way, you know, when your hair is done and your makeup is done, of course you feel prettier. You feel more assertive than when you are in your sweater and slippers. And that's mm -hmm. the same way with culture. When you strip yourself of your cultural clothes, if you wish, if you will, you're not naked, but it forces you to assess who you really are and to decide who you want to be as well, because you have the opportunity to put on a different set of clothing, culturally speaking. And so mm -hmm. you get to pick and choose pieces from every culture that you get to experience and they become a part of who you are. And then you do that with the people you're encountering as well, because you can't assume that a man who's wearing a dress, that's necessarily bad because in Africa, men do right. wear long robes that look like dresses, just right. like Jesus did. So see, culturally, a man wearing a dress here, that's a little weird, but there it's very normal. A mm -hmm. woman wearing pants in some parts of the world, that's a little weird. And I'm just referring to clothing, but we no, have but yeah. that same perspective and it allows you to expand and to decide what it is that is true and mm -hmm. to strip your prejudices as well the fact that that extends not only to yourself but to other people so uh, you know separating myself from louisianian culture is one thing extending that to other people and not making assumptions based on either my or our shared culture, I feel like that's a completely different way to experience people mm -hmm. altogether. Yeah. But see, because on a daily basis, you are experiencing a culture in others that is similar to yours. But right. if you were uprooted and put in Pennsylvania, you know, or in France or in Africa, you would suddenly have to relate to them differently. But they, I mean, they're still the same people. They're still relating to their common experience except you you're the newcomer so right. you have to relate to them differently than you did to your people back home but they're still relating to one another as they always have because all of a sudden you're the one who's aware of the culture that you're swimming in that is not yours but they are probably slightly unaware of it we are right. all unaware of the air we breathe mm -hmm. unless it starts smelling different right and so it is with our culture and I've learned over the years, because I'm a Bible teacher, I fell in love with scripture um, that same year that I became a believer. And God has given me a heart to teach scripture. And he has um, given me the gift of teaching for which I'm very um, humbled. But he has given me this passion for scripture. And I've come to realize, Blake, that whenever we open our Bible, it's like we're taking a plane and we're stepping into another culture, but we don't realize it. Mm -hmm. If you get on a plane and you go to France, the moment you get off the plane, you're going to know you're not in Louisiana anymore. And that's actually a pretty bad example because it might actually be very similar. <laughs> right. But, you know, let's say you're going to China or to India. You're going right. to step off the plane. The smells, the scents of the mm -hmm. food, of everything around you is going to be different. The people mm -hmm. are going to look different, talk different, be dressed differently. 
they may greet you with a greeting sign that doesn't mean anything to you. Everything is going to be different. You will know that instantly. How, so you'll be on your toes, culturally speaking, to read the culture. But when we open the Bible, we forget that we are uh, figuratively taking a plane and landing in the first century Jewish Middle East, if we are opening our New Testament, and even further in time in the Old Testament, we forget that. And so we assume that we can step into scripture as if it was written for 21st century Westerners, but Mm -hmm. it's not. Well, and I think it's such an interesting dichotomy because we know that scripture is alive and relevant to our lives today. And we make it for for me, American, when it's not. So it's this, and that's just the complexity, I think, of scripture, right? That it it applies to my life, but I think it would likely apply to my life even more effectively if I wasn't Americanizing it. Yes, because see, you are who you are, and you should not change and become something someone you're not. And the, and the Bible scripture is what it is, and it should not change and become something it's not. And so the meeting of these two unique identities of you and of scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, that should be a little bit of a clash. Mm-hmm. Because again, there is that cultural difference is not to even mention that it's the nature of God on one hand and you and I being um, humble sinners on the other, you know, which mm-hmm. adds to it. But I think... You can experience true intimacy with God through scripture if you completely Americanize it, Mm -hmm. but you're still missing out a whole lot. It's like people who, um, let's just picture that you have leftovers in your fridge and it's time for lunch. What you're going to do is that you're going to grab the leftovers, you're going to nuke them for 30 seconds, and you may add a pinch of salt and it's going to taste rubbery and gummy and chewy and not really good. or You can take those leftovers, you can sprinkle them with fresh cinnamon and cumin and cilantro and cardamom. You can throw them in the oven for 30 minutes and you're going to have a fresh flavor explosion Mm -hmm. instead of stale leftovers. Will it nourish you, give you the nutrients you need for your body? Sure. Will it be the same experience? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love to do. You know, my ministry is called Gospel Spice Ministries. And the reason for that is that we want to bring the spice back into your experience of scripture. We want to help you discover the flavors as Jesus intended them. Instead of sprinkling our all-purpose 21st century garlic salt, we're inviting mm-hmm. you to experience scripture the way the Holy Spirit initially intended by tasting those flavor explosions that come from a deeper cultural understanding of the original context. Oh, that is so beautiful. And, and such a perfect analogy for Americans, right? <laughs> you, if you can include a microwave in the analogy, it's a win. <laughs> and I'm French, <laughs> so I like food. So there's got to right. be food. <laughs> and I love that. So, so somebody that's listening And thinking, oh, wow, okay, I do very much just see scripture through my culture's lens. How, I mean, and I know that this is probably an extensive answer, but even if they're just first steps to to not doing that, how do I experience God's word the way he intended and, and within its actual cultural confines? Well, I would say the fact that 
you're even desiring to do that is massive already. The fact that mm -hmm. you realizing that you want a deeper experience with God, a deeper intimacy with him, just that it's half the work mm -hmm. to have that desire. Um, my motto is that we're called to delight in God's glory. We are to take delight in who God is. And the moment you realize that you want to delight in God at a deeper level, you are already smelling the spices. You may not be mm -hmm. tasting them quite yet, but you know that enthralling smell, the scent that comes wafting from the kitchen, you're already smelling that. And it's enticing to you. It makes you desire to want to dig deeper with him. And the practical ways to do that, I would say it's really just to surround yourself with people who have experienced that explosion of flavors because they will teach you how to do that. So to surround yourself with people who are in love with God, people who are just exuding the scent, the aroma of God. Those people that you're like, I want to be like them when I grow up. Mm -hmm. Their passion is contagious. I want what they have, whatever it takes. The moment you start making your relationship the number one priority in your life, your relationship with God, when it becomes your every desire, Blake, God is going to honor that because at the end of the day, God himself is going to step in and be your personal mentor. He's going to mm -hmm. be your coach. The Holy Spirit is going to be doing that work in you. The only thing he wants from you is a desire to come towards the kitchen because you're, mm. you're smelling it. You're, you're, those smells are enticing to you. Others would say, nah, not interested. And that's fine. But those that are, that are wanting to enter God's kitchen, the Holy Spirit is going to become your personal chef. And he will do that. And um, one of the ways, for example, and it has to do to me with studying scripture, but I'm a bit of a Bible nerd. So you have to mm -hmm. forgive me for that. I love to spend time studying. I do too. Like pulling it apart and seeing, you know, boiling it down to where the, the Hebrew came. That's, I could totally and nerd also, out with that. Yes. And also to see, for me, my passion is to find Jesus in every page of scripture, yes. in every page, yes. every passage of the Old Testament, every passage of the New, he's there. And there's always a deeper meaning to anything you've read. For example, I'm sure you're very familiar with the story of Palm Sunday. Mm -hmm. You've probably seen it acted out, you know, in Sunday school many times. You're probably acting it out maybe with your own children on Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter. And as people who have been in the church for a long time, we think we know all there is to know about Palm Sunday. Mm -hmm. One quick example. Did you know that when Jesus enters Palm Sunday, um, he enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, he is actually beginning to reenact the exact steps of a first century Jewish betrothal ceremony. Wow. And he ends those steps on Passover in the upper room with the meal that he is eating with his disciples. And throughout those four or five days, all that, all, every single thing he does has to do with a Jewish betrothal ceremony, which was roughly the same as marriage. Not exactly mm -hmm. because there was no sexual intimacy yet. But, um, and that's why even the betrothal is even more fitting with Christ from mm -hmm. a spiritual perspective because he is basically declaring himself as the bridegroom come to fetch his bride. And so when Paul then in his epistles keeps telling us that Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride, he's not making this up. He's not inventing it. What he is doing is that he is picking up from the cultural clues that 
Jesus left in order to read into the culture that this is what Jesus was teaching. Because if you read the gospel authors, Matthew in particular is a master of show, don't tell. Everyone, you know, as writers, we're always taught, you know, don't, don't, don't tell. You need to show it, right? Don't tell. Right. Well, that's what Matthew does. He shows, he doesn't tell. But because of 2,000 years of Western history, we have lost the original meaning. We can't read his show, don't tell. We need him to tell us, but he doesn't because he's writing to an audience that shared his cultural clues and that therefore was able to read into the text what he was not saying that he was showing. Mm. And so on, on, East, on Passover, for example, you know the famous passage um, when Jesus in John 14 talks to his disciples. Well, it just so happens that one of the last steps of a Jewish betrothal ceremony was when the potential bridegroom had come to the potential bride's house and he had, had asked her hand. They would share by drinking from the same cup of wine as a sign of their covenant. And then hmm. they would share from the same piece of bread as a way of saying that in the future, they're going to share everything. And then, and then Blake, the bridegroom-to-be would get ready to go back to his house, to his father's house, because he was not going to take the bride quite yet. There would be about one year of betrothal where the bride would be in her parents' house getting ready for him. And then he would go back to his father's house. And what he would do is that he would add uh, an extension to his father's house to build a house for his bride. And these are the exact words that every first century Jewish bridegroom would tell his bride. He would say, I am going to prepare a place for you. And when it is ready, I will come back to take you to be with me where I am. And you will be with me in my father's house. Now, these are the exact words that Jesus says in John 14, verses 1 to 4, I think. And he's telling this to his disciples. The disciples knew exactly what he was saying. But we've lost. It made sense to them because it was cultural. Absolutely. Like culturally what they experienced. And that makes it. I feel like I'm a little bit flabbergasted because you just totally... I mean, that makes that that very familiar Bible story even cooler. Yeah. Can I say cooler? Like Absolutely. it makes it even it gives it even more depth. It makes I mean, everything. Yes. It's a spice explosion. Absolutely. And see, it's like this in the all of the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. This is just one example. And that's what happens when you dare to taste the spice of the gospel. And when Jesus then dies on the cross, they understand he is saying, I'm the bridegroom, but I'm going to come back mm. to take you to be with me where I am. When, at the ascension, when he goes to heaven, he says the same thing and they understand. And now we are the bride. We are betrothed and we are supposed to beautify ourselves, spiritually speaking, because the bridegroom is coming soon. That's amazing. It isn't it? I know. It's amazing. And you get to like teach people that kind of stuff all the time. I know. <laughs> Do they get like this about it? I feel like if people can see me, I'm a little bit like, yeah. like looking around. Like I get what? like this all the time. Like it's, it's just, <laughs> see, it's mind boggling. There is, Blake, scripture is bottomless. There is mm -hmm. no, and what I'm telling you here, you know, when I discovered it, I was flabbergasted just like you are. And I know that someday in the future, I will learn something more about this passage and you will learn something new about this passage and you'll be flabbergasted by it again. 
Right. And in heaven, we will discover the infinite depth of all of it. And we will be speechless in awe mm -hmm. and reverence and worship of this amazing God that we get to call Father. Hmm. Well, and so have you ever heard of Jesus Storybook Bible? Oh, I love it. It's one of my favorites. Oh, I, I raised my, my kids on it. I love it. Jesus is in every single piece of it. He is. He and is. you, as an adult reading it, maybe this would be a good place for people who are overwhelmed to start. Get Jesus Storybook Bible mm -hmm. and see the way that Jesus is threaded through the Old Testament and the way the Old Testament is threaded through the new. Oh, and it just brings it to life so much more. Yes, it does. I absolutely warmly recommend that. Find, again, it's finding a source, finding someone or a book that speaks to you in this dimension to discover mm -hmm. Jesus. When you get hungry for Jesus on every page of scripture, when you read a passage and you ask yourself, okay, what is this passage telling me about Jesus? Rare is going to be the passage where with a little bit of digging, you won't find him. Mm -hmm. um, Tim Keller, one of my favorite preachers says that oftentimes when you do this exercise, it's not going to be the first 10 or 20 minutes that you're going to find something. You're going to have to dig at it. Mm -hmm. But when you do, you're going to find something. And another of my favorite preachers, John Piper, says that um, there's two ways to study scripture. You can read a lot of chapters at once, and it's going to be like raking for leaves in your mm. garden. And that's fine. Raking for leaves is fine. But once in a while, you want to camp in a passage, and you want to dig for diamonds. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you're going to find diamonds. And the yes. diamonds have a name and it's Jesus. Mm. And so you want to surround yourself by people who do this. And, um, yeah, I guess I would warmly invite you to listen to my podcast because that's what we do every week. We dissect scripture to find Jesus there. And um, you know what? Jesus shows up every time because that's what he does, Blake. Just like he does with you, he honors your commitment to follow him and to worship him and to honor him through your podcast and through all of the stories that you have here. He mm -hmm. honors it. Whenever we seek him, he promises that he will reveal himself. Mm, amen. Thank goodness for that because... Sometimes, I, and that's one of my favorite things about the Holy Spirit is knowing that he intercedes for us. And so there are times where I am in, in search and in need of something about Jesus and I don't even know what it is. And I can, I can pray about those things and Jesus is, you know, the Spirit is always faithful to reveal those things to mm. me through oh, scripture. So beautiful, isn't he, that he would do this for you? And he does this. He'll do the heavy lifting. Like yes. you, you are going to dig in and you're going to learn. Highly suggest it's Gospel Spice is the name of your podcast, right? Yes. The Gospel Spice yes. podcast. Mm -hmm. Highly like that is such a great resource for a way to, to dig into it. I talk about some of my favorite commentaries and concordances in, in other episodes, but I think that a really good place to start is is conversating with Jesus about the fact that you want to understand him better. Oh, yes. He's going to be faithful to walk in that with you. Mm -hmm. He will. This, honestly, this is a prayer I believe he answers every single time. Jesus, draw me closer to you. Okay, here's mm -hmm. the catch. Draw me closer to you, whatever the cost. Amen. And that's Amen. a tough prayer to pray. It is. You got to be ready for what's coming. But he is coming for sure in that prayer. If it was up to me to understand all of this, 
Oh. I would be in trouble. Oh, we would all be. I mean, right. oh, Blake, come on. You know, the way I like to say we are all preschoolers mm-hmm. when it comes to the things of God. And one of us, you know, some of us might be in the second month of preschool versus the first month, but we're all in preschool. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, so Absolutely. it's like, seriously. And I, I joke to say, you know, maybe Paul was like a first grader or a second grader. I don't know. And he's the most amazing Christian who ever lived, right, Paul? But right. Um, he was definitely way ahead of us. And despite that, I believe that he only got a glimpse of what, um, you know, of the infiniteness of God. And so... Mm-hmm. When we come alongside one another, when we, you know, I learn from listening to you and from listening to your guests and, you know, we, we interact that way. We learn from one another. We are devoted to Christ. Mm-hmm. And if you stay consistent in your devotion to seeking him deeper, he, he will just deliver. It's, it's none, of, none of our doing. Um, we can't take any credit. We can't boast. All we can do is be in awe that he is making himself known mm-hmm. and that he is giving us the ability to love him back. Girl, mm. nothing beats that. No, it doesn't. Wow. Well, I mean, obviously we could just talk about this forever because that's what heaven like, would be for. Oh, thank goodness. I can't, uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for sharing your incredible amounts of wisdom and your heart and your story. I, I learned so much just from this 45 minute conversation and I'm inspired and challenged to dig in deeper. And I'm going to go listen to your podcast and learn from you more. Thank you, Blake. God is good. It's all I can say. It's the only reason why this speaks to you, my friend, is because it's the spirit at work in you echoing the spirit at work in me. Nothing Mm -hmm. more and nothing less. He gets all of the glory, and you and I, we get all of the delight. Mm-hmm. Amen. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Crappy Christian Podcast. And hey, by the way, if you super loved it, can you go leave a five-star review wherever you're listening? That'd be awesome. All right, see you next week.